0: Um, we're ready to go and we're going um we're gonna be live in a minute one minute um that's just- my
1: audio do, do i need to talk into the you can hear me all right ben
2: yep i can hear you fine
1: I'm in San Francisco, so if I shout, you can probably hear me anyway if you open your window. (laughs) Whereabouts in LA are you? I'm in Venice. Oh, lovely. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I like it. Yeah, it's good. Landed in a good spot. We good, Crystal? I
1: think we're good. I think we've started. Sometimes it's weird this... uh, This Zoom product doesn't always tell you when you're live Uh, and if we are live the world will be listening. Welcome back to How to Fix Democracy, what we like to think of at the Bertelsmann Foundation of North America, Humanity in Action and the Institute for Canadian Citizenship as the show about the future and past and present of democracy. I'm not sure everyone would agree we are the show or the book perhaps my guest today would disagree but certainly <laughs> we are one of the shows which are trying to evaluate uh what's gone wrong with democracy and how to fix it in the future uh we spent the last three years or i spent the last three years this is the third year in the series of how to fix democracy shows um we have spent the last uh three years traveling around the world. Uh, we went to Berlin to, to, uh, to, 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 to think beyond or beneath or under the wall. Um, we spent a lot of time in Europe on the east and west coast of, of North America. I even went to Zagreb at one point to talk to the very distinguished um, Turkish democratic exile and friend, uh, Ece Temelkuran. Uh, And I didn't actually know it at the time, but I think our movements were being, uh, if not copied, certainly replicated by my guest on the show today, Uh, Benjamin Rhodes. uh, You will all, of course, know of him as uh, a very very influential figure in the Barack Obama um, White House. Uh, He has a long title, which I'm not going to repeat. He was essentially one of, if not the speechwriter for Barack Obama. So when Barack Obama opened his mouth, you were listening to Benjamin uh, Ben Rhodes' words. Um, He's very well trained in this area. Uh, uh, He has a a degree, a Master's of Fine Arts in Writing. He's a very distinguished writer. And he has a new book out, After the Fall, which is a book um, of his travels over the last three or four years um, going around the world from Hungary, we spent some time in Hungary. I spoke to Michael Ignatiev. Ben spent time in Hungary. Uh, All over the world, Hong Kong, Europe, East and West Coast of America, trying to figure out what went wrong uh, or what has gone wrong with democracy. Ben, welcome to How to Fix Democracy. Thanks, it's good talking to you about something we both have spent a lot of time thinking about. I think you were that guy I saw at one point in an airport lounge, Ben. um, what have you found uh, over the last three or four years traveling around the world when it comes to democracy? Uh, you call the book After the Fall, which is of course a reference to the fall of the Berlin Wall. You spend a lot of time talking to what you call the, uh, the post uh, 9-11 generation. Are we living in, in, in an age uh, shadowed by uh, the end, the, the fall of the Berlin Wall?
2: Yeah, well, look, I, you know, the title has kind of a double meaning because I look at the time after the fall of the Berlin Wall, but I'm frankly suggesting it's kind of after the fall of a certain kind of American hegemony in the world and inevitability about democracy in the world. Um, and, and you know, I started this journey after the 2016 election, having a sense that everything was going wrong in the wrong direction in the U.S. and and around the world. And I, the starting point for me was talking to a Hungarian uh, activist uh, in in Berlin and asking him, you know, well, how did Viktor Orban become, you know, essentially a single party autocrat, uh, take Hungary from being a democracy 10 years ago to where it is today? Uh, And he said, well, you know, it's quite simple. Orban got elected on a right-wing populist backlash to the financial crisis. He redrew parliamentary districts to favor his political party. He enriched some cronies through corruption who bought up the media and turned it into kind of a far-right propaganda machine benefiting Orban. He packed the courts with far-right judges who would find in his favor. He changed voting laws in Hungary to make it easier for his supporters to vote. And he wrapped it all up in a nationalist us-versus-them message. Us, the true Hungarians versus them, liberal elites, Muslims, immigrants, George Soros. Uh, and you know what he was speaking to is something I felt very intuitively, which is that the same thing you know, that he was describing that happened in Hungary it was the exact same thing that's happened in the last decade in the United States. And in many ways, Hungary had copied its uh, approach from Vladimir Putin. And, and we see this proliferation of nationalism blended with authoritarianism all over the world. Uh, and so the book is really my effort to understand how there's really one meta trend in the world that is undermining and threatening democracy. It's this turn towards a particular strain of nationalism and authoritarianism. What can we learn from how those things are connected and how people are pushing back against that?
1: And the subtitle of the book is Being an American or Being American in the World We've Made. Um, Is the world that you have looked at over the last four years and after the fall, is it a made in America world um, when it comes to culture to economics, to politics, to both the strengths and weaknesses of democracy around the world?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to be somewhat provocative. Um, and, and basically, look, uh, all, not everything is made by America. But what I wanted Americans to wrestle with is that we've been through a period of 30 years of, of global dominance, a, a position that few countries have ascended to in world history. And this is where we're at in terms of American democracy. Why is that
1: provocative? I mean, what's provocative about that?
2: What's provocative about it is that I think the United States has contributed to the nationalist and authoritarian trend around the world in ways that Americans, I think, have trouble wrestling with. Uh, in particular, I focus on three areas in the book. One is the kind of unbridled, unregulated form of American capitalism that drove globalization and led to the bottom falling out in the financial crisis in 2008, I think opened the door for the success of these kind of traditional nationalist appeals from an Orban or Putin who could say, this whole system is rigged, this whole system is broken, it doesn't work. And by the way, the Chinese could say, this system is hopelessly corrupt too. We have a bit different model. Um, I think the post 9-11 militaristic American foreign policy contributed to a, an authoritarian playbook in which the template of the war on terror could be used to justify authoritarian policies and politics in country after country while also creating a kind of us versus them xenophobia in the United States in which what was the enemy of terrorism could be repurposed to a black president or immigrants on our southern border or any shifting cast of characters. And then lastly, technology, where the United States, the prime driver of social media and the internet that was a power of uh, connection and, 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 you know, it was supposed to empower people around the world. And it did in many ways, obviously becomes a perfect tool of, of disinformation uh, and surveillance in the Russian and Chinese case and, and obviously in the United States as well. And, and so I want Americans, the provocative piece is, look, you know, the, the, the reason that democracy is in recession isn't necessarily because just because of what external actors are doing. Um, obviously, a Putin and a Xi Jinping have something to say about this. It's also a not illogical reflection of what American priorities have been the last 30 years, the hyper focus on profit, on security, and on technology. Um, that's really what has shaped the world more than the values that America likes to think of itself as standing for.
1: Uh, Ben, you don't need to tell me that we are, I I don't, um, I don't need to tell you that uh, we're coming up to July 4th, the celebration of American independence and democracy. I'm intrigued that you say that the problems with America have been over the last 25 or 30 years since the fall of the Walls. One of the central themes um, of this book, uh, or certainly of this, of this show, has been the the, the long term history of the West and particularly America, its history of racism, its history of essentially wiping out indigenous peoples. Are you suggesting that the history before nineteen eighty nine of American democracy isn't problematic? No, no, no,
2: absolutely, I, I, absolutely not. Um, and look, I, the way I see this is that there's a America has always been a competition of two stories, right? And in many ways you know, having worked for Barack Obama. Barack Obama and Donald Trump reflect that competition of stories. You know, we're a country founded on the premise that all men are created equal. The guy who wrote that owned slaves. Um, every step forward for racial justice or for greater equity is usually accompanied by a pretty virulent backlash against those things. And, and Obama represents this story of America as an imperfect country that utilizes democracy to try to make itself better. Um, And I think Trump reflects the story that is the reactionary one that says, no, America is only for some people. And that just traditionally historically is white Christian people. um, And and there's an exclusivity to that. And and so to me, we're just in the latest iteration of the competition that has defined America throughout our history. I do think that what's unique about the post-Cold War moment and, and we made plenty of mistakes in, in the Cold War, obviously, in our foreign policy and our domestic policies. But what's unique in this moment is the position of absolute preeminence America had in the world, I think, led to excess. You know, I think when you, the, you know, the, one of the truest uh, statements ever made, right, is that power corrupts and absolute power can, can corrupt even more significantly. When the United States had so much dominance in the world, uh, it led to excesses in terms of our approach to capitalism and that culminates in the financial crisis in terms of our approach to foreign policy and the Iraq war I think is the clearest manifestation of that and in our approach to technology and social media and you could say Facebook for instance is is an example of that so this is just the particular most current flavor of the same competition that has taken place I think throughout American history and racism is obviously you know the the driving force behind the, the, the us versus them brand of nationalism uh, in America that we see in many different places. One of the things I do in the book is look at how the American version of the, the right-wing backlash to that 2008 financial crisis that I think did kind of propel a lot of the, the, the nationalist authoritarian trend we've seen, particularly in the West, the American flavor of that was obviously particularly racialized against a black president. So you had the grievance of people who felt this whole system is rigged uh, and when the bottom falls out in 08, and then you compound that to them uh, with the grievances of seeing a black person ascend to the highest office of land, you get our version of, of this, which is the Tea Party, which is a bunch of people chanting, take our country back, um, and, and really becoming the driving force behind the Republican Party, even before you know, Donald Trump comes along.
1: One piece of housekeeping I forgot to note is that uh, Ben and I will talk for 45 minutes, uh, and then we'll take questions. Uh, you need to put those questions on the q and A. I'm sure many of you will have questions. Um, ben, uh, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but you seem to be suggesting that there are two American democracies, the American, the good American democracy of Barack Obama, the bad one of Donald Trump, the inclusive one of Obama, the exclusive racist one of Trump. Um, I'm curious whether you personally and and, and you as a kind of, I guess, spokesman of the Obama regime, though, would acknowledge that uh, the good America isn't always good. A few months ago, I interviewed for another show the CNN journalist, international correspondent, Clarissa Ward, and uh, Clarissa feels very strongly she she covered the, the Syrian war. Uh, in uh, I think it was in two thousand and sixteen um, as the Russian bombs were landing on Aleppo, she sent you an email. She said, "Dear Ben, hope you are sleeping well as Aleppo burns. Thank goodness we have the Russians to sort it all out." she didn't any, hear anything back from you. But of course, her point was that the Obama regime screwed up in in the Middle East, in Syria is one of the reasons why the war became so tragic. Um, I don't want to defense, uh, your defense of that in particular, but I am curious, um, do you, do you stick by the idea of uh, a, a kind of a narrative of good and evil in American history and American democracy?
2: Well, there's a lot there, but I don't, n- no, I don't. <laughs> I don't think. Uh, I mean, well, I, well I, let me rephrase didn't, the question. Yeah, yeah, do yeah, you well, take yeah.
1: sort of uh, a responsibility, not for yourself personally, but for the Obama regime, for these various crises of democracy, of, of Orban, of Navalny, of, of China, of, uh, of the Philippines, because many of them happened, uh, uh, at least at the, uh, uh, well, the seeds of them happened uh, under the Obama watch.
2: Well, yes. I mean, look, look my, the point I, I'm trying to make in this book is that the, the United States you know, we're on a spectrum here. We encompass good and bad in in all forms of government. I don't suggest there's a good and evil and we had everything right and Trump had everything wrong at all. In fact, what I'm arguing in the book is that there are much deeper structural reasons in our foreign and domestic policies and in our society for some of the things that have gone wrong in America and around the world. There are also wonderful things too, by the way, that we should be proud of as a multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy. When I look at where we went wrong, Um, It was some of the the incapacity to to fix some of the structural drivers uh, of illiberalism in the world, the inequality that I think has turned people off uh, of democratic governance, the obviously failure to regulate, understand the disruptive uh, effects of social media and certain technologies uh, around the world. Um, In our foreign policy, uh, I guess where I take some issue with Clarissa, I understand that the tragedy of Syria, um, but we didn't start that war. I mean, Assad did. Um, and to me, the United States has done more, the, the post-9/11 project, uh, we have fought wars in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Libya, in Somalia, in Yemen. The idea that the United States going to war in Syria with Assad, Um, That you could we can debate whether or not that could have alleviated the suffering in Syria, whether you certainly the United States has the capacity. We could have removed Bashar al-Assad from power in Syria. Um, I I think what we all have to reckon with and acknowledge is that that wouldn't have led to a perfect outcome in Syria any more than the U.S. intervening and knocking over regimes in, in Libya under Obama or in Iraq and Afghanistan under Bush did. So I'm a little uncomfortable with the idea that what was missing in the Obama years was another military regime change effort in Syria. Um, I think that's not. I, I, I think that's part of what's gotten us into trouble. Frankly, is that the the idea that the way in which the United States demonstrates its commitment to its values is purely through kind of overseas military action. And again, I'm not putting words in Clarissa's mouth here. I, I think she could argue that we shouldn't have overpromised. We shouldn't have called for Assad to go. There are all kinds of things that we did wrong in our Syria policy, uh, in an incredibly difficult situation. But I, The one thing I, I do find I, I, I don't agree with is this idea that, that the world was moving in a, you know, a, a generally constructive direction on these issues and then Obama didn't intervene in Syria and that led to Trump and Brexit and all the rest of it. This, this trend has been building in the world for a long time uh, but it was there before Obama, it was there through Obama, it was there after Obama, it's there after Trump. And I think we make a mistake by overly personalizing this. Um, I, I don't even try to, to focus on Trump in this book, because I think Trump is just, you know, one manifestation of, uh, of an authoritarian trend in the Republican Party in the United States of America. I think, you know, th- this idea that um, any one person is, uh, is good or evil, um, you know, is part of the problem. We have to look at, at structures Uh, and and the direction of events and what is informing those. Um, And that's what I try to do. Let's talk then
1: about those structures. Uh, You mentioned earlier that you thought one mistake was not to address the issue of inequality in in global capitalism. Um, And and I get that, but what could have America have done? They can't shape the nature of capital accumulation and the markets in in Hungary. I don't quite understand what America's role could be in terms of reforming capitalism. It can reform its own capitalism, but not global capitalism.
2: Well, I think, again, I'm looking at a 30 year period in this book, and I think America could have done a lot. And I think that the the kind of rampant deregulation of the American economy, um, which kind of became the driving force behind the global economy, uh, you know, contributed, if you look at Victor Orban, for instance, um, it, you know, it's the American-made financial schemes that could that could take place because of the nature of the unregulated American economy that tanked the entire global economy in 2008, and that you have Victor Orbán perfectly primed to take advantage of that. Um, and you know, he gave a speech in 2014 in which he kind of sketched out his liberal project, um, in, in which he said that the financial crisis had to be seen as a global regime change on par with. World War I, World War II and the Cold War, that 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 was a moment where everything was gonna be different on the the back end. And what Orban said that meant is that societies in the West had to turn to illiberal models and look to places like Russia and China as exemplars more than America. That's the extreme version of it. But the point is that what America does at home because of the size of our economy inevitably ripples out. So yes, I do think that if America has a, a, a better regulated economy that America is dealing with some of the the, the antitrust issues in our economy. And yes, if America is working to narrow inequality in our economy, um, that's the healthiest thing we can do, I I think, to be setting a better example and being a better engine of the global economy. I do think that there are other things that we can do to try to do multilaterally, and you already see this, the Biden team, uh, trying to pursue a global minimum tax, trying to cut down on tax avoidance and tax evasion around the world, trying to crack down on the kind of dark money flows Uh, The illicit finance and money laundering that is often the lifeblood of autocratic regimes like Putin's or Lukashenko's, or to some extent uh, people like Orban and and Erdogan, Um, and and so there there are things we can do. I think it's wrong to suggest that that there's a kind of I'm not saying you were, but that 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 there's an inevitability to the um, the the ways in which uh, global capitalism has so sufficiently so 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 acutely angered people. And look, I'll I'll, you know. Navalny told me this as well, that you know Putin doesn't have to, to suggest that he is not corrupt. What he just argues again and again is that, look, the uh, Americans are just corrupt in a different way. And the financial crisis was a perfect exemplar of that um, for uh, Putin, because essentially, as Navalny told me, that Putin's message after that was like, see, uh, the, the, everybody gets screwed and, and the rich people get bailed out. That's just how the world works. You might as well, in that circumstance, at least have a strong man who gives uh, expression to your grievances, and so I do think we have more agency on this than 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 we assume. And I think that there's a a, a trap just to, to think, oh, you can't do, really do anything about these things. It doesn't really matter. There's this kind of hidden hand of uh, of what's happening in the marketplace. No, I think the, the the global marketplace and global inequality is a result of a lot of policy choices that were made by successive American administrations back to Ronald Reagan, um, and and that means we can do something about it.
1: Uh, You begin the book with a quote from uh, Ecce Temelkuran, who, as I said, we we both, I don't know if you spoke to her, but um, uh, she's a friend of mine, and and, and she's actually in our movie, How to Fix uh, Democracy. Uh, The quote from Ecce is, The final takeover does not happen with one spectacular Reichstag conflagration, but is instead an excruciating years-long process of many scattered, seemingly insignificant little fires that smolder without flames, I wonder when you look around the world, when you look at the Russian model and the Chinese model and indeed the Turkish model, is there one that you particularly fear? seems to me uh, that the the Chinese model offers a, a, a genuinely convincing structural alternative to American democracy, whereas the Russian one, doesn't um are you particularly fearful i know in the book you spend a lot of time in hong kong are you particularly fearful of the kind of digital orwellian system that the chinese are creating
2: yeah and i mean that's one of the key points i wanted to drive home in the book i spend a bunch of chapters focused on hong kong for the express reason that i feel like we can kind of see what the future dystopia might be i I think the russians are disruptors and and Putin's essentially just trying to disrupt and undermine the international order. So you know he can serve his own interest uh, in power and, and wealth. And the same thing with an Orban. The Chinese have an alternative means of organizing society, um, not just government, but all of society. Um, if you look inside of China, the totality, when they blended together essentially a Chinese nationalism with an openness to capitalism, with technology, and yes, helped generate extraordinary prosperity that has lift, lifted a lot of people out of poverty. Uh, an achievement that i think uh is is an undeniable good in terms of standards of living but then have wired the society in such a way that you know if you're in china and i heard this i talked to to people obviously who've left china um like you know every choice you make you know if you want your kid to go to a good school or you want a good job like you can express certain political opinions you can't access certain information you you're, you're, the incentive structure in the society is such that you just you're, you're just completely driven in a particular direction and in Hong Kong when I asked people to describe what's happened the last 20 years what they described is that encroaching on what was once an open society so in Hong Kong it is an open society you have access to information for uh, you know over the last 20 years but then suddenly over time it becomes apparent hey you want to get a good job you want to get ahead you better not go to certain websites uh, you better not even put certain words in email because uh, it could be monitored. Um, It's just not worth even thinking those things uh, because ultimately if you're out of step with where the direction of things are going with the Chinese communist party, you're going to be disadvantaged. Uh, At the same time that there's an effort to introduce new curriculums in schools that propagandize around the Chinese communist party at the same time that the media is being bought up by pro communist party tycoons. And, and it was like thinking about uh, like a, an external organism coming in and taking over with this kind of, you know, nothing changes in the street. Like you don't see tanks in the street, but this, the, in part because of technology, there's this capacity to kind of put a total surveillance around the society. And I think what was so interesting to me about the Hong Kong movement is the Chinese argument has been the Chinese communist party argument has been people would prefer to live like this, but there was one city in the world where people had the opportunity to opt into the Chinese system. If the Hong Kongers had said, yeah, we went all in, we don't want one country, one two systems, we want one country, one system, they could have done that. And basically almost the entire city tried to opt out um, and gave expression to this, uh, this protest movement that we all watched. That to me tells me that human beings would rather live with freedom and in individual agency. But I do think, in, if you look at the way in which that movement was swallowed up in the course of time that I was writing this book, the momentum behind that Chinese model is extraordinary. There's so much money behind it. There's so much power behind it. And it's already shaping our behaviors, whether it's the US government, but certainly businesses and cultural. When's the last time you saw a movie that was critical of the Chinese Communist Party? When's the last time that an American business uh, has really Uh, been- uh, uh,
1: Ben, you're beginning to sound a little bit like a a cold warrior here. Are you suggesting that um, the the
2: Chinese are, are under my bed? No, I'm not. I'm suggesting that, 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 I mean, I like, because well, why, why
1: wouldn't I see a film that um, that's critical of the Chinese communist party because the Chinese communists are controlling
2: Hollywood. No, that this is my point. It's, it, it, it's, about us, not them in the sense that that and Hollywood wants to get into that market. And so they know that if they make movies that are critical of the Chinese government, they're not going to get in that market. Why is John Cena, the actor from fast nine, apologizing in Mandarin to the Chinese people for referring to Taiwan as a country. I described the anecdote of the book of like uh, uh, the, the, in the NBA when there's a single tweet from the Rockets GM and all the Chinese all the NBA games are pulled off of Chinese state television. The point here is that we, because we prioritize profit over democratic values, we've been making these compromises, um, and, and not just governments, but businesses and, and cultural institutions, because of just there's how much money there is behind it. And, and I don't want a Cold War. Uh, like To me, the answer begins in our own societies. What are we prioritizing in our own countries? What are we prioritizing in our own democracies? Because I don't think we've been prioritizing democracy. I think we've been prioritizing profit and, and security and technological advancement here. Um, and, and so I think the answer begins with ourselves um, more than the answer is, Spending a trillion dollars on a defense budget so that we can, um, you know, uh, have some multi-decade kind of geopolitical confrontation with China. I do think we have a competition of models, and 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 to win that competition of models, we should be focusing on the health and success of our own model more than anything else.
1: Let's talk about that health and success. Uh, Trump is gone, and I think most people, including myself, are, are happy with that. Uh, what? can and should the Biden administration do to strengthen democracy, particularly when it comes, you've talked about race in the past, economics, and of course, voting rights, what needs to be done to shore up American democracy so that those little fires that uh, Ece Temelkuren, um talks about are actually put out and we don't have this final
2: conflagration. Well, I think you know, there are two pieces to this. What Joe Biden talks about a lot is we have to show that democracies can deliver. And this is kind of making the point that you know, the, the, the Chinese model can be very efficient. You know, they can make big changes in the economy or society or they can move into lockdowns very efficiently. Um, and, and, and so in, in Biden's argument, that means, and I agree, that, that being able to do big things in, in a democracy, being able to spend a trillion dollars on new infrastructure, being able to transition to a clean energy economy, you know, being able to, re- to address inequality, that that, 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 is, uh, you know, th- that will draw an important contrast and show people, hey, democracies can solve the problems that our citizens actually care about. That's only half the story, though. I think the second half is, is the health of the democracy and society itself. Um, and this is harder work and ultimately this gets at issues of, of, of obviously voting rights and creating antibodies against what I think is a, a really insidious Republican effort to, uh, to to essentially rig voting laws uh, in state after state to give them an advantage in elections or give them the capacity to overturn elections. Um, so protecting and extending the right to vote, addressing racial inequities and uh, in everything from our criminal justice system to our broader society. And, and here's the thing about this, um, Joe Biden can't do all that himself. Uh, uh, Like I would like him to, um, but look, we have to wrestle with the the reality that the question of democracy success isn't gonna be resolved in two or four years or eight years. This is an ongoing process. And so what do I mean by this? Well, the best thing that could be done is if the the Democrats could pass uh, sweeping voting rights protections, uh, laws that get money out of politics and, and create more transparency in how money enters into politics. Right now they don't have the votes to do that because there are a couple of democratic senators standing in the way. I wish that wasn't the case, but it is. That doesn't mean we just sit and wait though. I think what that means is that at the local level, at the civil society level, like people have to be registering people to vote. People have to be pushing back on these laws. People have to be shining a spotlight on what's happening so that we can see the playbook uh, as they're seeking to implement it. Um, So what needs to be done is this effort to kind of protect and strengthen democracy. And, and from voting to money uh, to, to, to racial inequity in society. And, and again, I think as much as I want Joe Biden to solve those problems, we can't just assume he will. Um, and, and therefore this, this has to be you know, an effort like what Stacey Abrams did in Georgia. She got an election basically stolen from her. So she went out and started an organization, raised money, registered millions of people to vote. And that's why Joe Biden won Georgia and the Democrats control the Senate. It's gonna take that kind of effort um, at every level of, of American society, I think, to, to protect and strengthen democracy.
1: Uh, ben, the third series in How to Fix Democracy has been focused on citizenship, and we've had series of conversations about, um, about what it means to be a citizen politically in a democracy in the early 21st century. Um, does America need to rethink uh, its foundations when it comes to the ideal of citizenship, of intermediary institutions that Alexis de Tocqueville focused on. If we're to really strengthen America, it's all very well asking a, a Joe Biden or a, um, or, or a Stacey Abrams to fix everything. But do we all have a role here? Do we need to rejoin or join unions and churches and political parties? Does America's political infrastructure need to be uh, rethought
2: yeah i mean and again that's I, I i i point to Stacey abrams as a citizen not as uh, as an elected leader i i but she's a I, super I,
1: citizen she's she she has the power the energy the the uniqueness that most of us
2: don't have yeah no but look i i i well there are two pieces of this so like one is what is a citizen second what do we do i i i say being american in the world we made in part because these get to fundamental questions of identity um, I mean, in the 20th century, the competition was, you know, communism, capitalism, fascism, ideologies. Clearly in the 21st century, what is most contested right now is what does it mean to be American? What does it mean to be Hungarian? What does it mean to be Russian? And, and to me, I'm not clear. And perhaps you could
1: explain what, 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 what do you mean by that? What does it what mean, I mean to be American?
2: What I mean? Well, this gets back to the two stories thing. I think Trump's view is being American. And my view of being American is anybody from anywhere in the world can be an American, that America is about a multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy in which anybody, no matter what you look like or where you come from or what you believe, can be equal as a citizen. I don't think that's Donald Trump and Stephen Miller's view of what it means to be an American. I think they would say America is a Christian, is really a white Christian nation. That's what it, what it means to be American, is to be a very particular and certain kind of person, right? So there's the overlay of just identity here, which is is America truly going to try to live up to the idea that anybody from anywhere in the world can be an American? I think then the, the second point is, is, what is the responsibility on a citizen? And yes, I, I think you know, people need to, uh, the idea of being an active citizen in a democracy uh, and uh, needs to, to, to galvanize more Americans. And I think it has though, by the way. I mean, I, I've been struck by the fact that the, the, the degree of engagement in these debates, the degree of engagement in, in the work of democracy um, is much higher today than it was um, 10 years ago. And I think that, you know, the shock of Trump woke people up to, to this in a lot of ways. I'm, you know, my podcast, Pod Save the World, is part of Crooked Media, which has a, 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 a Vote Save America, for instance, initiative, in which, you know, we've raised, uh, you know, tens and tens of millions of dollars for Democratic candidates. We've got thousands of volunteers for political campaigns. Like people want to do something. People want to, to, to be active. And by the way, there are different ways to do this. Some people will run for office. Some people will get involved in political campaigns. Some people will volunteer or contribute to political campaigns. But these are societal issues too. I think just being engaged in your community, like you said, like, uh, uh, you know, getting invested at, at, at a community level or getting invested in the education uh, in your community. I, I think people need to, to see citizenship as, as, as a much more active identity than it has been um, in, in recent American history. And I think that's beginning to happen though. I think that's, I don't think without that awakening, Joe Biden doesn't get elected in, in 2020. The, you know, this was not like a, a, a snowball rolling downhill like Barack Obama in 2008 with this incredibly charismatic figure. Um, it took a lot of effort from a lot of people across this country to, to get Donald Trump out of office um, and I think that that's you know uh, a so- it's one sign that more Americans are taking citizenship seriously.
1: At the end of the book, um, Ben, you talk about history now at, as a, a hinge point. It reminded me of uh, Larry Summers' uh, essay in 2019 when he's pre uh, as COVID was happening uh, as as history at a, at a hinge point. Um, are we at a hinge point? And is that hinge point? At least in America, is it Black Lives Matter? Is it COVID? Is it post-Trump? Uh, one of the other things I liked about the book is that you you suggest that the one thing when 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 Obama read the draft, he told you that every generation thinks they're at a hinge point. We yeah. always think that oh what well, we're living through is unique and we never really are. Um, so two questions there: Is this really yeah. a special moment in history? Every moment seems special, and. What is special about it? Might it be the way, for example, that the Black Lives Matter um, protests have spread to the rest of the world? Is that what America now has to offer? I know in the European uh, football championships now, there's a big debate about whether or not players should take the knee. That certainly uh, is is an export, a cultural export from
2: America. I think that uh, the reason I think this is a hinge point is, um, you know, I, 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 I truly believe like we had a period of time after World War II to the end of the Cold War, right, um, that was defined by this struggle between uh, the United States and Soviet Union. We had a period of time um, after the end of the Cold War defined by the kind of spread of globalization. And now we've arrived at kind of the question about what's next, uh, and what the current direction of events, the trend that I kind of interrogate in this book, is really a, a more traditional form of nationalism that we see everywhere in China, in India in Hungary, in Russia, in Brazil, in Turkey, in nation after nation, this isn't some new thing. This is the old thing, you know, the, the kind of blood and soil nationalism. Yeah, the 19th at,
1: century thing. Uh, you know, I, yeah. uh, I went to Budapest to talk to Michael Ignatieff. I, I'm sure you know him. He's yeah. written extensively about
2: 19th century nationalism. So it's just a return. Yeah. It's a return to the familiar. And, and what worries me is we've seen where that leads, you know, like that leads to inevitably leads to conflict. Right. And and, and, and then the, I do think what's, the, while the, the same cycle plays out again and again between democracy and kind of nationalism uh, in, in, in recent world history, um, there's always something unique about the time. Um, and to me, what is unique today is technology and how much that can accelerate. I mean, if you look at the disinformation uh, that, that is you know, the way in which social media is kind of literally creating alternative realities and sorting people into them. And we have a problem in this country where like, you know, 30 to 40% of the country just believes you know, that Donald Trump had the last election stolen from him. Like that is the, the, the capacity of technology to do that. And then you add the capacity of technology, as we were talking about China, to be this kind of perfect tool of surveillance and trying to shape how people act. I think that, that's the new factor that you mix into the old, right? And so the hinge point is just okay, we're in this cycle. Uh, w- w- what's next? Are we going? Is the pendulum going to continue to swing in this nationalist direction, which I think will lead us to, down very dark roads, or can we swing that pendulum back in the direction of a more inclusive democracy? And that's where I think Black Lives Matter is relevant because look, America, we've talked a lot about the negatives that America exports. Like America also exports a lot of positives. And this question of whether a multi racial, multi ethnic democracy can actually succeed um, is you know we're dealing in miniature with what the whole world is dealing. And so I think if we can demonstrate that we can fight through this very difficult period we're in and come out on the other end as a more inclusive, more functional, more effective democracy. And by the way, that's not gonna happen in four years. I'm talking about the next 10 or 15 years. If we can do that, like think of the example that sets um, around the world. It's not just a speech from on high about democracy, it's showing. Uh, that that you can do this. And if you look around the world and it, the, the mass mobilization is taking place, you know, Hong Kong, you know, you talk about Navalny's movement, you talk about the Hungarian opposition as I look in this book, but also climate strikes and protests against inequality in Latin America and on and on, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. Movements fail and fail and fail until they succeed. <laughs> and, and and what I hope is that that there's greater connectivity between these movements uh, for social justice and, and that that over time, um, they can get the, the momentum can be at their backs, uh, whereas over the last you know decade, it's certainly been in the other direction. Uh, ben, one of the best friends of this show is the um, the
1: Emory University uh, historian um, Carol Anderson. Uh, I'm sure you know her work. Went down to Emory to um, to to Atlanta to interview her a couple of years ago, and she spent an hour telling me about the terrible racial sins which are. Um, and uh, unarguable of American history and at the end like you she she spoke about the possibility of the future and I said to her Carol and and we have actually this this interaction in the movie Carol you're as American as anyone and she she laughed and she said yeah well we uh, African Americans we have to be more American we have to believe in the future you're obviously not African American do you think um in your optimism that uh white americans like you have something to learn from black
2: americans like carol anderson a hundred percent you know and I, I tell the same thing in the book of kind of when i bottomed out in terms of my feelings about my own country um you know it was at the height of the pandemic um you know i've got small kids and you know uh, on comp on top of the kind of uh, criminally negligent uh, incompetence uh, and you know, willfully negligent response to COVID that has got us on lockdown, has my children obviously wearing masks and afraid. Um, you have George Floyd and, and my neighborhood is covered in murals of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. And and, and I'm having very difficult conversations with my four and six-year-old about um, why these Black people are being killed by white police. And then the National Guard is put in my neighborhood and I, I was they didn't need to be there. I mean, it, you know, we didn't need, you know, the, the soldiers um, with, with, you know, uh, heavily armed with kind of armored vehicles repurposed from Iraq and Afghanistan, and and I, I I just felt such anger and frustration, and I described that there was then a Black Lives Matter protest the next day, a peaceful, diverse protest led by obviously African Americans, and I remember just thinking like, well, I'm angry because you know I'm an aggrieved former Obama official, Donald Trump. COVID, you know, good reasons to be angry, but nowhere near the same reason that black people in this country have to be angry. And yet here they are out still trying to make the country better. Um, And and to me, you know, it's something that I think Obama um, has told me over the years, right? Which is if you're black, you have to believe more in what America said. You know that America lives, does not live up to the story it tells about itself, but you have to believe in that story because the pursuit of it is even more important to you precisely because you've been denied your rights, right? So I think what white people have to, to learn from black people is both the gap between what America says it is and what it actually is, but also the importance of caring about what America says it is and, 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 and fighting for what America says it is. That, that just because we don't live up to the story doesn't mean you just get cynical and say, Well, you know, the world is what it is, and so screw it. Um, it, it's, it's the, that's the the doing of American democracy, and the rolling up your sleeves is what we have to learn, uh, chiefly from you know the people who, who are out there, you know, fighting for those things.
1: Ben, this is great. We've got 15 minutes left, we have a number of questions. I'm going to hand it over to Hannah. Hannah, uh, I know you've been collating the questions, I'm not sure. Um, how long they are, but perhaps you might address uh, these questions or or one or two of them to Ben and we can go through them in the next 15 minutes.
0: Sure, Um, I'll start with a question from Connor who says, any thoughts or discussions on keeping or removing the subheading of, in quotes, being American in the world we've made, end quotes, for the international versions of your book. The book spoke to me, a Brit in London and served as a reflection for all on recent global politics. Thank you. Yeah,
2: you know, I'm glad you asked that question. I I did, I I, I subtitled it that in part, because I wanted, like we were saying earlier, for Americans to say, hey, like we bear some responsibility for what we're seeing around the world. Um, And we have to figure out um, what we think it means to be an American uh in, in order to figure out how to deal with what's happening around the world um i did i i i did say to my international publishers you know pick a di- you know feel free to pick a different subtitle um i mean after the fall i think is is the that's the point is you know, as we talk about the kind of double meaning what happened after the fall of the berlin wall but also what happened after the kind of the fall of america and the inevitability of democracy um, I, I, I really want this book to find a global audience, because to me, it's about really as Americans it's about listening to what people are saying on the world. And by the way, a, a bunch of British voices pop up in here. Um, Britain is very important, I think, to um, the story I tell here. It's obviously essential to the Hong Kong story I tell in this book. So now, yeah, very briefly,
1: I, Ben, uh, do, yeah. would you put Brexit in the Orban Putin camp? Or is it something that you think is, is really just a feature
2: of democracy? I, I put it in, in that camp. It's part of the same backlash. Like the, the, the take back control slogan is actually in many ways the perfect distillation of the, back, the kind of nationalist backlash to globalization. Mm. Um, and so I do, I put, it's a different version of it. And it's not as virulent, um, obviously, as, uh, as aspects of, of you know Putin or Orban. Or, or but, but it is, it's part of the same backlash, I think, in um, the same... Kind of, so 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 that's a good question. And, and yes, people should project their own subtitle onto it internationally. And I've said as much to my international publishers. Good, Hannah, more questions.
0: Yes, um, we've grouped a couple questions about technology. So I'll ask them um, as good. a series. So you mentioned technology a few times in this discussion and recent technological developments have advanced autocratic regimes. And democratic societies have also taken a reactive approach towards passing policies to attempt to rein in technology. Um, So, do you see a positive role for technology to strengthen democracy? And any thoughts on how individuals or governments can encourage the creation of new technologies to promote democratic values?
2: I mean, technology. Yeah, a great question. Technologies are human tools. And so yes, we can control uh, them uh, for for good or bad. And I frankly, I think right now, for starters, in the United States, there has to be a a more regulatory approach to social media. I mean, these are choices. Algorithms are written um, to mainline uh, sensational information and disinformation conspiracy theory usually gets engagement. Um, And so there's a reason. Um, I mean, look, Donald Trump put it this way when he left, was kicked off Twitter and started basically a blog, nobody visited it. It takes the algorithm to kind of mainline Trump to people to create the engagement that ricochets back and forth. So I think one is as a matter of public policy, uh, I think the US working with the the EU and other governments, democratic governments uh, should be trying to identify what are the standards and expectations that we have for tech companies in when it comes to hate speech, when it comes to the spread of disinformation um, and when it comes to the manipulation of these algorithms by bad actors. Um, and then insofar as the tech companies aren't meeting those standards in the US, at least I think we have to be open um, to regulatory approaches. I think for individual citizens, um, one of the great and, and interesting things to watch is the kind of competition. You know, I, I, in a way that tech was on the side of citizens um, up, up till about the Arab spring. Uh, I, I think around that time, um, autocracies both saw the danger uh, of new technology but also the opportunity um, that oh, what these people are using to organize we can use to divide and use to spread disinformation and at the same time China is creating a parallel internet uh, of surveillance. So I, I, I think citizens innovating in ways that frankly I, I can't tell you how that will be because I'm not a technologist but, but you know every, every movement that we see out there uses technology to create a kind of a culture around mobilization. I mean, to me, so while I don't know the exact technological answer, what I found in looking at what's worked in the U.S. in our politics, and frankly, part of what sustained the Hong Kong movement, this idea that you can use different technologies to make people feel like, you know, they're they're, they're part of something. It's not just about a political agenda, but that there's a cultural aspect to it as well, an expression aspect, a connection aspect to other people. Um, uh, you know, th- those kinds of approaches, uh, I think, can continue to use technology to empower people. Hannah, more.
0: Great, thank you. Um, so we have a bit of a multi-part question about citizenship. Um, so it starts: citizenship comes with rights and obligations. How can we increase citizens' participation and make individuals take citizenship more seriously? And then kind of as a follow-up, is it a desirable or be achievable? To require specific actions to make individual citizens earn, quote unquote, earn their citizenship. For example, requiring voting, requiring national service of some kind, requiring individuals to take civic or citizenship exams when renewing driver's license, for example. Mm.
2: So I I personally, um, to kind of combining those two, I'm a proponent of national um, service, which I know is controversial from from both the left and the right uh, for different reasons. Um, In part, because I just feel like, um, you know, what's interesting to get to the Cold War frame again briefly, You know, when I reflected on growing up, like there was kind of a common national identity that was tied up in the Cold War um, it was imperfect, obviously, but you know, we were supposed to stand for certain things and everything from the politics to the pop culture was infused with this idea that we were supposed to be for, for freedom and the other guys weren't. Um, and that may have been oversimplified, but it was what it was. I don't think that there's been much of a common national identity in the United States. And there's certainly not people talking to each other across differences. And so I would love to see more, if it's not mandated national service, I do think whatever mechanisms can be created uh, at community levels and at the national level, um, beyond the military. What are you doing on
1: that, um, Ben? Because it sounds to me like you're very much still in, in the, uh, the bosom of the left democratic network, your podcast, your writing, your authorship. Are you, ta- are you talking to people who don't share your opinion? You have one or two encounters in the book.
2: Well, my, yeah, I mean, my, you know, my, my brother works for news corporation, so I talked to them in my family, but um, look, I, 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 I don't know, I, I, um, I see, um, you, you know, I see my role, right, uh, you know, part of what, what where I found myself in 2016, you know, when I look at my podcast and the kind of conversations I'm trying to create there and the kind of activism that connects to in my NGO as well. Um, I, I, I'm comfortable that my role right now is to try to mobilize and energize um, younger progressives. I mean, like th- that, that's to me the most um, constructive thing I can do at this moment in what I think is a democratic, small D democratic emergency. Um, I do think on, on public policy, on, on questions of broader public policy and service, um, I would just like to see as many opportunities created um, for young people to serve in different ways in their communities. And when that happens, it creates space for, for conversations from people from different backgrounds. Um, again, you can do that a national service level. You can do it in kind of a climate core uh, is something that's been, you know, as, as all the work that's gonna have to be done to transform the climate, but you can do it in, in local communities around other things. Uh, so th- there's a service component to this. There's a civic education component that in the polarized environment right now, I would like to see more civic education, but but what that means is obviously an incredibly contested thing in America right now because, um, you know, d- it drags you into in, 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 into debates, uh, you know, like the ones we're having now, which is a whole other discussion, uh, <laughs> critical race theory and the like. Um, but at a minimum, I, I do think that whether it's a well, very the way, briefly I,
1: on the critical race theory front, uh, Ben, are they the other side of the white nationalist coin? Are they uh, is, is that group as um troubling to democracy in terms of its concept of exclusivity in in identitarian
2: in terms as 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 white nationalism? Yeah, I mean it's all it's all the same. I mean to me, there's there's just degrees of extremity in I think what is like a a, a an increasing illiberal movement in this country, that you know, whether the Republican Party, you know, if QAnon, white nationalists like anti-critical race theory it's a spectrum right um moving my hand uh, as i realize this podcast obviously but um th- there's a spectrum i think uh, 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 but it you know it's it there's it's all part of a broader uh, momentum in the society um no and, my, and- my
1: point was about
2: critical race
1: theory itself are there problems with that about thinking purely
2: in, in, in terms of racial Oh, I identity. see what you're saying. No, well, I think that critical race theory has been grossly misrepresented because I think basically arguing that um, that there are structural inequities and structural racism in the society and the history of that to be understood is being conflated with saying all white people are bad. It's actually the opposite of what critical race theory says. I do think that on the left, there can be a, a totality or an extremity of view That that is a mirror image that says you you, you know you know that 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 kind of rejects the identity completely of of, of people who disagree with you. There have to be there has to be plenty of space for disagreement in democracy. I I could be wrong about all kinds. But here's how I look at this. You know I could be wrong about all kinds of things about the size of government or our foreign policy or what have you. You know Um, uh, I could be wrong about our Syria policy as Clarissa Ward right thought I was although. Uh, that's like I, I have to. We'll have to have a whole show, uh, Ben. You yeah, because I. Yeah, well, I, and <laughs> she puts me in charge of the policy, which I wasn't the president of the United States. So uh, that's that's the one thing that I always should br- bristle at a bit is that I wasn't. But my point is that democracy itself, I won't compromise on, and, and I I don't think I'm wrong, wrong about that. that, that is, so essentially, to me, whether you're talking about the left or the right, the space it is I will not compromise on. And sometimes people say to me, well. What about, you know, you need to understand better some of these, I don't, I don't necessarily, I I need to understand why a bunch of people were mounting an insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. I don't need to compromise with those people. I won't compromise with those people. And so I think that's how I kind of sort this out is that like, we all have to be uncompromising about the core of our democracy, which is currently under threat. Then we can fight about everything else in in the middle of that, you know, Um, but, but not on that. And, And right now, I believe that a major political party in this country is not committed to democracy. And that is staring us in the face every day. Um, And so I I refuse to kind of look away from that for the sake of uh, of politeness. Um, I
1: have to be, uh, Ben, I have to be uncompromising when it comes to time as the host of this. We're coming up to the hour, but I think we can squeeze in our final questions, Hannah. Uh, Last questions to Ben. It's been a wonderful discussion and the questions have been excellent too.
0: Yes, um, I combined two questions for the last one. And it is, um, are you hopeful for the future? And how do we tackle these structural issues? And what is the role of Gen Z in particular?
1: Perfect ending, especially the Gen Z stuff, because you've already talked about being hopeful. Perhaps you can, you can add the generational element as a, as a, um, a final observation, uh, Ben.
2: Yeah, I think the the final observation I make is is I I am hopeful because I think younger people um, are for these outcomes. And what my advice would be is essentially, if you look at political power in this country, um, it's responsive to public opinion. Um, And and the issues that I think matter to Gen Z are the issues that I think will make the democracy healthier. Um, So dealing with racial justice, dealing with technology, um, dealing with climate change, right? Issues in which the American government, including the Biden administration, has not caught up to where they need to be. Uh, My message is, you can can affect where they, you know, the the people who run for office, the democratic caucus in the house is regenerating and and the younger people are making sure that the agenda includes some of these issues, but also out in the culture, the way the culture is impacting politics, the way that young people are affecting their parents, uh, the the way that the culture chases young people, right? Um, And such that the Black Lives Matter movement may not be making huge headway in, in the political space in some ways, but it is in the cultural space. To me, just young people staying engaged and not succumbing to the trap of cynicism and apathy um, ultimately will, will bend the story in the right direction, but it's not preordained or inevitable. Uh, I think that's what we all were woken up to as Americans. Like, There's nothing inevitable about our democracy. Um, and so if, if young people sit it out, um, it'll go in the wrong direction. I think whether it's election outcomes or everything else, if young pe- the more young people are engaged, the better outcomes we will get.
1: Well, there's no doubt that one way to get a better outcome is to read uh, Ben Rhodes' new book, After the Fall, uh, Being American in the World We've Made. Ben, I want to thank you for, for such a, a generous, open discussion. Uh, your book is a must-read. Uh, you are a must-see-here uh, a, a, a must figure, I think, on, on, on the progressive side of American politics. Best of luck, keep well, and we'll have you back on how to fix the future. I'll no doubt bump into you in various airports around the world in the next few years. Thank you so much.
2: Great, thank you.